1: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 141, The Continental Congress Returns to Philadelphia. When we last left Congress in the winter of 1776-77, they had fled Philadelphia for Baltimore. The British in New Jersey had threatened to take Philadelphia, and the politicians did not want to be there if that happened. General Washington, of course, eliminated that threat when he crossed the Delaware and captured the enemy at Trenton and Princeton, then forced the British and Hessians to pull back their front lines to the area of North Jersey around New York City. With the threat removed, Congress returned to Philadelphia in March 1777. Not everyone else returned, though. John Adams, in a letter to his wife, noted that more than one-half of the inhabitants removed themselves into the country. Most of those who remained were Quakers, who Adams called dull as beetles. Although everyone expected that the British would make another attempt on Philadelphia in the summer of 1777, for the moment in the spring there was no emergency. Congress once again turned its attention to the Articles of Confederation, a document that would authorize and define Congress's authority to do, well, anything. They did not actually agree on much of anything, but they did agree to devote at least two days each week to working out an agreeable plan. By the end of April, they had agreed to three articles, one of which contained the name of the document, a second which affirmed that each of the separate states retained their sovereignty, and a third to mutual defense of all states against any outside enemy. In other words, fighting together in a war that they had already been fighting for two years. The second article was the only one that proved contentious. Congress had begun its debates using draft articles submitted by John Dickinson. The Dickinson draft envisioned a more powerful national government that would handle most matters, leaving states only control over their internal affairs. The delegates rejected this approach. Instead. They viewed Congress as an international assembly of separate states. They would work together for mutual defense. They might unanimously agree to do some other things in cooperation, but there was no way a state could be forced by the others to do anything it didn't want to do. Over the next few months, the delegates debated what additional powers the states should give to Congress, but they really couldn't agree on much of anything. Once again, the most contentious issues were over voting and representation, whether states should be represented by population or with equal representation for each state. These debates pushed on for months, when in July, Congress once again voted to table the debates on the articles since they could not reach any consensus. Congress would just continue to operate without any guiding document. Congress took up other various matters on other issues during this same time. On June 14, 1777, it passed a resolution saying that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes alternating red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. That is why we celebrate Flag Day on June 14. Back in episode 89, I talked about the story of Betsy Ross creating the first flag in May, 1776. I mentioned at the time that there was no good contemporary evidence of the Betsy Ross story being true. The story comes from Ross family lore and was not written down until decades after all the contemporaries were dead. It is still quite possible that the story is true, the flag's creation was not a momentous event that would necessarily be recorded at the time. But if there was a flag in 1776, there is no record of it being flown, and Congress certainly didn't authorize it as the official flag until June of 1777. When it did that, Congress's main purpose for the resolution in June 1777 was to create a standard ensign for naval ships. It did not specify that the stars on the flag be put in a circle. There are some flags from that time that have different star designs. The first mention of the site of a new flag came a few months later in August 1777. Making Flag Day a celebration did not become a thing until more than a century later after the Civil War. There was, however, one celebration that Congress was ready for. At the end of the day, on July 2nd, Congress adjourned for two days to celebrate the first anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. On July 4, 1777, Congress and all of Philadelphia celebrated. Warships and galleys gathered at Philadelphia, decorated in red, white, and blue, and with streamers. Each of the ships fired a 13-gun volley in honor of the 13 independent states. A newspaper article reported that, quote, The evening was closed with the ringing of bells, and at night there was a grand exhibition of fireworks, which began and concluded with thirteen rockets on the commons, and the city was beautifully illuminated. Everything was conducted with the greatest order and decorum, and the face of joy and gladness was universal. Thus May, the 4th of July, that glorious and ever-memorable day be celebrated through America by the Sons of Freedom from age to age till time shall be no more. According to another report, a band made up of Hessian POWs from Trenton played for crowds in Philadelphia on that day as well. With the first Independence Day celebration over, Congress got back to work. Another contentious issue for Congress was the promotion of generals. That spring, Congress commissioned a few more brigadier generals. George Clinton of New York, Edward Hand of Pennsylvania, Charles Scott of Virginia, Ebenezer Learned of Massachusetts, and Jedediah Huntington of Connecticut. During the Baltimore Session, Congress had agreed to give primary consideration to three factors when promoting generals. One was merit, the second was seniority, the third was the numbers of troops supplied by each state. In other words, a state that provided more soldiers to the army would get more general officers. Of course, each of these were general factors with no firm rule on how they should be applied or even how much weight each would be given, so it really didn't solve anything. But whatever little value the resolution had, got thrown out the window when French officers began to arrive with notes from the American commissioners in Paris promising them commissions and officerships in the Continental Army. These men had no seniority in America, were not from any state that supplied troops, and whose merit was a matter of debate. Most even did not speak English. In March, after receiving word of dozens of French officers making their way to America, Congress passed a resolution saying that unless the officer had mastered English and had top recommendations, he would not be accepted. The problem was, Congress could not simply anger French officers who had taken the trouble to come across America with promises already made. Turning them away would possibly ruin chances of forming a military alliance with France. In the spring of 1777, Many of the French officers promised commissions as general or other high ranking officers arrived in America. Now, up until this time, the only French general in the Continental Army was Matthias de Fermoy. That was the soldier of fortune who somehow sailed to America from the French West Indies in late 1776. To this day, we know nothing about his real background before coming to America. He claimed to be a colonel of engineers in the French army, although there are no records of his service. I mentioned Fermoy in episode 125 when he commanded a small force near Trenton and, at the first sight of the enemy, ran away abandoning his soldiers. People were beginning to suspect that he was a fraud, but for now he was still serving. Many, by 1777, were ready to consider any Frenchman claiming titles and experience to be impostors, though. In France, Silas Dean had already approved dozens of French officers to serve in America. Many of them had attempted to sail in December 1776 aboard three ships that Dean and his French counterpart Beaumarchais had packed full of supplies and planned to sail out of Le Havre, I mentioned this back in episode 115, when British Ambassador Lord Stormont caught wind of the venture and forced the French Foreign Minister Vergen to shut the whole thing down. Only one ship got out, and it ended up turning around and got stopped as well. Most of the officers looked for another option. The first one to successfully make it was Lieutenant Colonel Philippe Hubert Prudhomme de Boer whose name I probably pronounced horribly, but that's the best you get. He arrived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire on March 17, 1777, aboard the Mercury, one of Dean's supply ships that was able to make its way to America. In April, about a month after his arrival, Congress approved De Boer's commission and backdated the date of his commission as Brigadier General to December 1, 1776. This backdating retroactively put him ahead of 16 other brigadiers who had received commissions since then. De Boer, by this time, was almost 50 years old. He had fought as a cavalry officer in the War of Austrian Succession, where he was badly wounded and lost the use of one hand. Although still active as an officer in the Seven Years' War, there's no record of his active participation in any battles. Before leaving for America, he was serving as an artillery brigadier, an area the Continentals needed experienced officers. He took command of a brigade of mostly Maryland regiments, along with one from Quebec, which was made up of many French-speaking soldiers. A month later, another of Dean's supply ships, the Amphitrite, arrived in Portsmouth, this time carrying two men holding commissions as generals. Thomas Conway as brigadier, and Philippe Charles Tronçon du Cordray as Major General. The Amphitrite was a ship that had gotten away in December, but returned back to France a few days later. After that stoppage, it finally did slip out of France at the end of January and made a difficult three-month voyage to New Hampshire. The officers from there made their way overland to Philadelphia to present their credentials. Now, I actually mentioned Thomas Conway last week when he commanded troops at the Battle of Short Hills, but I really didn't give any background on him at that time. Conway was born an Irish Catholic. His family moved to France when he was a child to escape the restrictions put on Catholics in Ireland. Conway joined the French army at age 14 in France's Irish Brigade a special group for Irish expatriates serving in France. Through this service, he rose to the rank of colonel. Because Conway was not only an experienced officer, but also spoke English, Congress approved his commission as a brigadier in May, just a few months after his arrival. Conway entered service as an infantry commander. Du was another matter. Dean had offered him command of artillery and engineering for the Continental Army. The current commander, General Henry Knox, made clear that he would resign from the army if Congress put him under the command of Caldray. Congress spent most of the summer debating what to do about all this. As he waited, Caldray busied himself by advising on the Delaware River defenses that were protecting Philadelphia from a naval invasion. Finally, in August, nearly four months after he arrived in America, Congress offered Caldray a commission as a major general, but with the understanding that he would not be part of the command structure. Instead, Congress created a new position, Inspector General of Ordnance and Military Manufactories, where Caldray could advise on matters but not issue orders. Caldray reluctantly accepted the position, figuring he could make his way into command after proving his worth on the field. There were a bunch of other French officers that I neglected to mention because even just limiting myself to naming the generals is throwing out a whole bunch of names that, let's face it, none of us are going to remember. I'll make one exception to that rule and also note that Louis Duportal received a commission in July as a Continental Colonel and Commander of Engineers. I'm making the exception for him, since he would be promoted to Brigadier in a few months and has one of the longest and most successful roles of all the French officers in the Continental Army. But Congress was also receiving dozens of French officers who had been promised commissions as colonels, majors, and captains, and I promise I won't bore you with all of their names. While Congress was deciding what to do with more than a dozen other French officers that had already made it to Philadelphia holding these promises of commissions granted by Silas Dean in Paris, three of the other officers that had been promised commissions as major generals also showed up. Initially, Congress just said no. They did not want any more general officers who could not speak English. That just created too many problems. The French officers, however, persisted in making their case. One of the most persistent was the least experienced officer, the 19-year-old French captain named Gilbert du Mortier. Although the boy had no combat experience, he had been an officer since the age of 13 when his family had obtained for him a lieutenant's commission. Since his family was very well connected to the French king, Congress didn't want to insult him. Probably most important, though, he offered to serve without pay. So by the end of July, Congress opted to make this young man a major general in the Continental Army. So Dumontier, better known by his aristocratic title, the Marquis de Lafayette, received his commission on July 31, 1777. Along with Lafayette were two more senior officers and would-be major generals. General Johann de Kalb, a German-born officer in the French Army, was the most experienced senior officer to travel to America. He and Colonel Charles-Louis Comte de Moray both expected to be made major generals. Unlike Lafayette, both very much expected to be paid for their services. Instead, Congress dithered and left these men cooling their heels in Philadelphia for the rest of the summer. Now, I want to devote an entire episode to Lafayette's backstory in a few weeks, so I'm going to get into him as well as the story of these other two men at that same time. During this same session, Congress took care of one other important piece of business regarding generals. After receiving word of General Benedict Arnold's brave leadership during the Danbury Raid, Congress finally promoted him to Major General on May 2nd. For Arnold, this was too little too late. He went from being the most senior Brigadier General to becoming the most junior Major General, meaning the promotion did not change his place in the command structure. After receiving word of his promotion, Arnold traveled to Philadelphia to meet directly with Congress. He brought with him a pamphlet published by one of his enemies, Colonel John Brown, which ended famously with an accusation levied at Arnold, quote, money is this man's God, and to get enough of it he would sacrifice his country, end quote. Arnold thought that such scurrilous accusations were the reason Congress had been reluctant to promote him and had allowed so many other men to pass Arnold in rank and seniority. He wanted to challenge these accusations. The congressional committee that acted as the Board of War was headed by John Adams. They allowed Arnold to testify at a committee meeting on May 21st that ran well into the night. It wasn't the full hearing that Arnold wanted, but it did give him the chance to tell his side of things directly to members of Congress. Two days later, the Board of War presented its report to Congress, exonerating Arnold of the charges against him. Congress, however, refused to act on restoring Arnold's seniority. After two months of waiting, Arnold had enough and submitted his resignation to Congress. But before Congress could act, it also received a letter from General Washington informing Congress that the British had begun their invasion of upstate New York. Washington recommended that Arnold be sent immediately to help defend against this invasion. Arnold asked that his resignation request be put on hold and rushed off to fight another battle in defense of his country. On August 8th, long after Arnold had left for New York, Congress finally took up the resolution to adjust Arnold's seniority, and they voted against it, overwhelmingly. Even John Adams, who seemed to have a good impression of Arnold, voted no. The main reason seemed to be that Arnold was pressuring them to do it. Congress thought such pressure was inappropriate. So as Arnold fought the Battle of Saratoga, Congress denied his request for seniority. As I said, shortly after its Independence Day celebrations, Congress received word of the British capture of Fort Ticonderoga and that British General Johnny Burgoyne was marching south through New York's Mohawk Valley. A few weeks after that, Congress learned that British General Howe had left New York and then landed in Maryland, where he planned to assault Philadelphia from the south. General Washington marched his army from New Jersey toward the British. On August 24, 1777, just days after confirmation that Howe's fleet was in the Chesapeake Bay, The Continental Army marched through the streets of Philadelphia on their way south. This was a bit of theater by General Washington. He wanted to impress the city and Congress with his army of around 12,000 men. Washington gave orders the night before to make sure the officers and men were ready to march smartly through the city streets, carrying their arms and looking like soldiers. The army marched down Front Street to Chestnut then across the city, marching right past Independence Hall toward the Schuylkill River. Wagons with baggage and extra ammunition, as well as female camp followers, were redirected around the city and would not march through Philadelphia along with the soldiers. Orders also prohibited officers and men from stepping out of line for any reason during the march through the city on punishment of 39 lashes To be carried out at camp the next night, if they did. John Adams was not overly impressed by the sight of the army. In a letter to Abigail later that day, he wrote, The army, upon an accurate inspection of it, I find to be extremely well armed, pretty well clothed, and tolerably disciplined. Much remains yet to be done. Our soldiers have not yet quite the air of soldiers, they don't step exactly in time. They don't hold up their heads quite erect or turn out their toes so exactly as they ought. They don't all of them cock their hats, and such as do don't all wear them the same way. Adams went on to say that with the army now between the enemy and Philadelphia, he felt as safe there as he would in Braintree. But that sense of safety did not last long. General Howe was going to fight a series of battles that fall, all of which are going to be topics of future episodes. By September, Philadelphia was about to fall to the British Army. Congress once again had to flee the city. This time they went first to York, Pennsylvania, which is about 65 miles west of Philadelphia, then on to Lancaster, which is about another 20 miles further west across the Susquehanna River. Congress would remain there in Lancaster, for the course of the British occupation of Philadelphia. Next week, I want to take a closer look at General Burgoyne's Northern British Army, which has its sights set on Fort Ticonderoga.
0: Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, We rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, Hey, I'm a writer. I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bells books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250 which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's t r a c y l a w s o n books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST.
1: Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. Thanks to Trey Nance for his continued support as a Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon. I really appreciate his generous commitment to helping me meet the show's expenses. Trey, like all my Patreon supporters at $10 a month or higher, receives a different Revolutionary War flag magnet each month. I've made dozens of different flag magnets so far. Each one comes with an explanation of the flag and its role in the war. Also, for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the show on Patreon. You get advanced access to new shows, access to a private, commercial-free RSS feed of the podcast, and other benefits. I may soon be releasing some private recordings for Patreon members only. So, if you can kick in anything, I very much appreciate it. This week's episode covered quite a few months of activity, from the time the Continental Congress returned from Baltimore to Philadelphia in March 1777, until it left the city again in September. Obviously, quite a few other things happened during those same months, Which I have covered in other episodes and will continue to cover in episodes to come. My goal with this episode was to simply focus on what Congress was doing during this period. As this episode showed, much of it was dealing with generals and would be generals from both the states and abroad. Other than that, much of the debate centered around the Articles of Confederation, which Congress still did not pass. While the leaders all agreed they did not want Britain to rule them anymore, they still could not agree on what would come next. Some believed there was a need for some central authority that would have at least some basic powers. Others were strong supporters of the states remaining separate entities. In their view, although the states would cooperate when they could, their Declaration of Independence meant that each state was, well, independent. Officials did not want to cede any power, even to Congress, to have control over the states. As a result of this ideological division, the debate in the Continental Congress went nowhere. I sometimes get the question what was the legal authority for Congress to operate during this period? The answer is that, well, there was none. Until July 1776, Britain and ultimately the King was the sovereign and as we saw, the king considered the Congress an unlawful assembly. Upon independence, each state declared its own sovereignty. Ironically, they made that declaration through Congress, but there was nothing in the declaration or any other document that ceded any sovereign authority to Congress, let alone say how it should operate. Congress started in 1774 as an ad hoc body of men Who were mostly sent by local patriot organizations with dubious legal authority to do anything anyway. The only thing that held Congress together was that the people generally agreed that there needed to be cooperation and that Congress was the place to do it. The delegates just made up their own rules and acted without any formal governance. While that was no permanent solution, no one seemed to agree on what would be the permanent solution. The one thing that the states seemed to agree on letting Congress do was running the army, something the delegates showed at best probably mixed ability in doing. Granting commissions was a highly political issue, which led to the ongoing rivalries between top officers and even some resignations of good officers. The introduction of a bunch of French officers at this time made things even more complicated. You have to remember that most Americans had grown up as British colonists hating the French, their traditional enemies. Now suddenly, these same men were being asked to put their lives under the command of these former foes, who did not even speak their language. It created a great deal of confusion and conflict for many. With all these problems, the only way Congress got anything done was the quality of its delegates. And my book recommendation this week covers the lives of one of those delegates, a longtime member of the Continental Congress, Robert Morris. The book is called Robert Morris, Financier of the American Revolution, by Charles Rapalé. Morris is one of the key players in Congress during the war, but he later opts not to join Washington's cabinet under the Constitution. He passes off that role to a younger man, Alexander Hamilton. Thus, Morris is not as widely as remembered as he might have been as a founding father. Still, I find his story fascinating. He pulls himself up from nothing to become one of the most prominent merchants in America. At one point in his life, he may have been the wealthiest man in America, but then ends up going to debtor's prison. The book is a traditional biography covering his entire life. It's over 500 pages, not counting notes and index. The author, Charles Rappelai, was a journalist who wrote several books about American history. Sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. His book about Morris was published in 2010. If you've read other books about famous delegates such as Benjamin Franklin or John Adams, the Robert Morris biography provides an interesting new perspective. For my online recommendation this week, if you want to learn more about the history of Flag Day, Check out my link to the Chamber of Commerce site about the history of Flag Day. It provides a good and pretty short summary of how we came to celebrate this day. The URL for the site is a pretty long one. It's www.chamberofcommerce.org/usflag/history/flagday.html. Of course, you don't have to remember all that. I've put a direct link on my website. At amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.